Help us choose which books to read next on Send Me to Sleep. You can vote using the link in the episode notes. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 30 and 31, the final chapters of Emily of New Moon by L. M. Montgomery. In the last chapters, Emily finally made a connection with Aunt Elizabeth. In tonight's story, Emily has her great moment. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to this story as much as I've enjoyed reading it. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 30 When the Curtain Lifted It would be pleasant to be able to record that after the reconciliation in the lookout, Emily and Aunt Elizabeth lived in entire amity and harmony. But the truth was that things went on pretty much the same as before. Emily went softly and tried to mingle serpent's wisdom and dove's harmlessness in practical proportions. But their points of view were so different that there were bound to be clashes. They did not speak the same language, so there were bound to be misunderstandings. And yet there was a difference, a very vital difference. Elizabeth Murray had learned an important lesson, that there was not one law of fairness for children and another for grown-ups. She continued to be as autocratic as ever, but she did not do or say to Emily anything she would not have done or said to Laura had the occasion called for it. Emily, on her side, had discovered the fact that under all her surface coldness and sternness, Aunt Elizabeth really had an affection for her, and it was wonderful what a difference this made. It took the sting out of Aunt Elizabeth's ways and words, and healed entirely a certain little half-conscious sore spot that had been in Emily's heart ever since the incident of the drawn slips at Maywood. I don't believe I'm a duty to Aunt Elizabeth anymore, 
she thought exultantly. I don't believe I'm a duty to Aunt Elizabeth anymore, she thought exultantly. Emily grew rapidly that summer, in body, mind and soul. Life was delightful, growing richer every hour, like an unfolding rose. Forms of beauty filled her imagination and were transferred as best she could to paper, though they were never so lovely there, and Emily had the heartbreaking moments of the true artist who discovers that never on painter's canvas lives the charm of his fancy's dream. Much of her old stuff she burned. Even the child of the sea was reduced to ashes. But the little pile of manuscripts in the mantel cupboard of the lookout was growing steadily larger. Emily kept her scribblings there now. The sofa shelf in the garret was desecrated, and besides, she felt somehow that Aunt Elizabeth would never meddle with her private papers again, no matter where they were kept. She did not go now to the garret to read or write or dream. Her own dear lookout was the best place for that. She loved that quaint, little old room intensely. It was almost like a living thing to her, a sharer in gladness, a comforter in sorrow. Isla was growing too, blossoming out into strange beauty and brilliance, knowing no law but her own pleasure, recognising no authority but her own whim. Aunt Laura worried over her. She will be a woman so soon, and who will look after her? Alan won't. I've no patience with Alan, said Aunt Elizabeth grimly. He is always ready to hector and advise other people. He'd better look at home. He'll come over here and order me to do this or that, or not to do it for Emily. But if I say one word to him about Tyler, he blows the roof off. The idea of a man turning against his daughter and neglecting her as he has neglected Isla simply because her mother wasn't all she ought to be, as if the poor child was to blame for that. Shush, said Aunt Laura as Emily crossed the sitting room on her way upstairs. Emily smiled sadly to herself. Aunt Laura needn't be shushing. There was nothing left for her to find out about Tyler's mother. Nothing. Except the most important thing of all, which neither she nor anybody else living knew. For Emily had never surrendered her conviction that the whole truth about Beatrice Burnley was not yet known. She often worried about it when she lay curled up in her black walnut bed o' nights, listening to the moan of the gulf and the wind woman singing in the trees, and drifted into sleep, wishing intensely that she could solve the dark, 
old mystery and dissolve its legend of shame and bitterness. Emily went rather languidly upstairs to the lookout. She meant to write some more on her story, The Ghost of the Well, wherein she was weaving the old legend of the well in Lee Field, but somehow interest was lacking. She put the manuscript back into the mantel cupboard. She read over a letter from Dean Priest which had come that day. One of his fat, jolly, whimsical, delightful letters, wherein he had told her that he was coming to stay a month with his sister at Blairwater. She wondered why this announcement did not excite her more. She was tired. Her head was aching. Emily couldn't remember ever having had a headache before. Since she could not write, she decided to lie down and be Lady Trevanion for a while. Emily was Lady Trevanion very often that summer, in one of the dream lives she had begun to build up for herself. Lady Trevanion was the wife of an English earl, and, besides being a famous novelist, was a member of the British House of Commons, where she always appeared in black velvet with a stately cornet of pearls on her dark hair. She was the only woman in the house, and, as this was before the days of the suffragettes, she had to endure many sneers and innuendos and insults from the ungallant males around her. Emily's favourite dream scene was where she rose to make her first speech, a wonderful, thrilling event. As Emily found it difficult to do justice to the scene in any ideas of her own, she always fell back on Pitt's reply to Walpole, which she had found in her Royal Reader, and declaimed it with suitable variations. The insolent speaker who had provoked Lady Trevanion into speech had sneered at her as a woman, and Lady Trevanion, a magnificent creature in her velvet and pearls, rose to her feet amid hushed and dramatic silence and said, The atrocious crime of being a woman, which the honourable member has, with such spirit, and decency charged upon me, I shall attempt neither to palliate nor deny, but shall content myself with wishing that I may be one of those whose follies ceases with their sex, and not one of that number who are ignorant in spite of manhood and experience. Here she was always interrupted by thunders of applause. But the savour was entirely lacking in this scene today, by the time Emily had reached the line. But womanhood, sir, is not my only crime. She gave up in disgust, and fell to worry over Isla's mother again, mixed up with some uneasy speculations regarding the climax of her story about the ghost of the well. 
mingled with her unpleasant physical sensation. Her eyes hurt her when she moved them. She was chilly, although the July day was hot. She was still lying there when Aunt Elizabeth came up to ask why she hadn't gone to bring the cows home from the pasture. I... I didn't know it was so late, said Emily confusedly. I... my head aches, Aunt Elizabeth. Aunt Elizabeth rolled up the white cotton blind and looked at Emily. She noted her flushed face. She felt her pulse. Then she bade her shortly to stay where she was, went down, and sent Perry for Dr. Burnley. Probably she's got the measles, said the doctor as gruffly as usual. Emily was not yet sick enough to be gentle over. There's an outbreak of them at Derry Pond. Has she had any chance to catch them? Jimmy Joe Bell's two children were here one afternoon about ten days ago. She played with them. She's always playing round with people she's no business to associate with. I haven't heard that they were or have been sick though. Jimmy Joe Bell, when asked plainly, confessed that his young ones had come out with measles the very day after they had been at New Moon. There was therefore not much doubt as to Emily's malady. It's a bad kind of measles, apparently, the doctor said. Quite a number of Derry Pond children have died of it. Mostly French, though. The kids would be out of bed when they had no business to be and caught cold. I don't think you need to worry about Emily. She might as well have measles and be done with it. Keep her warm and keep the room dark. It'll run over in the morning. For three or four days, nobody was much alarmed. Measles was a disease everybody had to have. Aunt Elizabeth looked after Emily well and kept on a sofa which had been moved into the lookout. She even left the window open at night. In spite of this, perhaps Aunt Elizabeth thought because of it, Emily grew steadily sicker, and on the fifth day, a sharp change for the worse took place. Her fever went up rapidly. Delirium set in. Dr. Burnley came, looked anxious, scowled, changed the medicine. I'm sent for to a bad case of pneumonia at White Cross, he said, and I have to go to Charlotte Town in the morning to be present at Mrs. Jackwell's operation. I promised her I would go. I'll be back in the evening. Emily is very restless. That high-strung system of hers is evidently very sensitive to fever. What's that nonsense she's talking about, the wind woman? Oh, I don't know, said Aunt Elizabeth, worriedly. She's always talking nonsense like that, even when she's well. Alan, tell me plainly, is there any danger? 
There's always danger in this type of measles. I don't like these symptoms. The eruption should be out by now, and there's no sign of it. Her fever is very high, but I don't think we need to be alarmed yet. If I thought otherwise, I wouldn't go to town. Keep her as quiet as possible. Humour her whims if you can. I don't like that mental disturbance. She looks terribly distressed. Seems to be worried over something. Has she had anything on her mind of late? Not that I know of, said Aunt Elizabeth. She had a sudden, bitter realisation that she really did not know much about the child's mind. Emily would never have come to her with any of her little troubles and worries. Emily, what is bothering you? asked Dr. Burnley softly, very softly. He took her hot, tossing, little hand gently, oh so gently, in his big one. Emily looked up with wild, fever-bright eyes. She couldn't have done it. She couldn't have done it. Of course she couldn't, said the doctor cheerily. Don't worry, she didn't do it. His eyes telegraphed, what does she mean, to Elizabeth. But Elizabeth shook her head. Who are you talking about, dear? she asked Emily. It was the first time she had called Emily, dear. But Emily was off on another tack. The well in Mr. Lee's field was open, she declared. Someone would be sure to fall into it. Why didn't Mr. Lee shut it up? Dr. Burnley left Aunt Elizabeth, trying to reassure Emily on that point, and hurried away to White Cross. At the door, he nearly fell over Perry, who was curled up on the sandstone slab, hugging his sunburned legs desperately. How is Emily? he demanded, grasping the skirt of the doctor's coat. Don't bother me, I'm in a hurry, growled the doctor. You tell me how Emily is, or I'll hang on your coat till the seams go said Perry stubbornly. I can't get one word of sense out of them old maids. You tell me. She's a sick child, but I'm not seriously alarmed about her yet. The doctor gave his coat another tug, but Perry held on for a last word. You've got to cure her, he said. If anything happens to Emily... I'll drown myself in the pond. Mind that. He let go so suddenly that Dr. Burnley nearly went headlong on the ground. Then Perry curled up on the doorstep again. He watched there until Laura and Cousin Jimmy had gone to bed, and then he sneaked through the house and sat on the stairs where he could hear any sound in Emily's room. He sat there all night, with his fists clenched, 
as if keeping guard against an unseen foe. Elizabeth Murray watched by Emily until two o'clock, and then Laura took her place. She has raved a great deal, said Aunt Elizabeth. I wish I knew what was worrying her. There is something, I feel sure. It isn't all mere delirium. She keeps repeating, she couldn't have done it, in such imploring tones. I wonder, oh Laura, you remember the time I read her letters. Do you think she means me? Laura shook her head. She had never seen Elizabeth so moved. If the child doesn't get better, said Aunt Elizabeth. She said no more, but went quickly out of the room. Laura sat down by the bed. She was pale, drawn with her own worry and fatigue, for she had not been able to sleep. She loved Emily as her own child, and the awful dread that had possessed her heart would not lift for an instant. She sat there and prayed mutely. Emily fell into a troubled slumber, which lasted until the grey dawn crept into the lookout. Then she opened her eyes and looked at Aunt Laura, looked through her, looked beyond her. I see her coming over the field, she said in a high, clear voice. She's coming so gladly. She is singing. She is thinking of her baby. Oh, keep her back. Keep her back. She doesn't see the well. It's so dark, she doesn't see it. Oh, she's gone into it. She's gone into it. Emily's voice rose in a piercing shriek which penetrated to Aunt Elizabeth's room and brought her flying across the hall in her flannel nightgown. What is wrong, Laura? she gasped. Laura was trying to soothe Emily, who was struggling to sit up in bed. Her cheeks were crimson, and her eyes had still the same far, wild look. Emily, darling, you've just had a bad dream. The old Lee well isn't open. Nobody has fallen into it. Yes, somebody has, said Emily shrilly. She has. I saw her. I saw her. With the ace of hearts on her forehead. Do you think I don't know her? She fell back on her pillow, moaned and tossed the hand which Laura Murray had loosened in her surprise. The two ladies of New Moon looked at each other across her bed in dismay and something like terror. Who did you see, Emily? asked Aunt Elizabeth. Isla's mother, of course. I always knew she didn't do that dreadful thing. She fell into the old well. She's there now. Go. Go and get her out, Aunt Laura, please. Yes. Yes, of course, we'll go and get her out, darling, 
said Aunt Laura soothingly. Emily sat up in bed and looked at Aunt Laura again. This time she did not look through her. She looked into her. Laura Murray felt that those burning eyes read her soul. You are lying to me, cried Emily. You don't mean to try to get her out. You're only saying it to put me off. Aunt Elizabeth, she suddenly turned and caught Aunt Elizabeth's hand. You'll do it for me, won't you? You'll go and get her out of the old well, won't you? Elizabeth remembered that Dr. Burnley had said that Emily's whims must be humoured. She was terrified by the child's condition. Yes, I'll get her out if she's in there, she said. Emily released her hand and sank down. The wild glare left her eyes. A great sudden calm fell over her anguished little face. I know you'll keep your word, she said. You are very hard, but you never lie, Aunt Elizabeth. Elizabeth Murray went back to her own room and dressed herself with shaking fingers. A little later, when Emily had fallen into a quiet sleep, Laura went downstairs and heard Aunt Elizabeth giving Cousin Jimmy some orders in the kitchen. Elizabeth, you don't really mean to have that old well searched. I do, said Elizabeth resolutely. I know it's nonsense as well as you do, but I had to promise it to quiet her down, and I'll keep my promise. You heard what she said. She believed I won't lie to her, nor will I. Jimmy, you will go over to James Lee's after breakfast and ask him to come here. How has she heard the story? said Laura. I don't know. Oh, someone has told her, of course. Perhaps that old demon of a Nancy priest. It doesn't matter who. She has heard it, and the thing is to keep her quiet. It isn't so much of a job to put ladders in the well and get someone to go down in it. The thing that matters is the absurdity of it. We'll be laughed at for a pair of fools, protested Laura, whose share of Murray pride was in hot revolt. And besides, it will open up all the old scandal again. No matter, I'll keep my word to the child, said Elizabeth stubbornly. Alan Burnley came to New Moon at sunset on his way home from town. He was tired, for he had been going night and day for over a week. He was more worried than he had admitted over Emily. He looked old and rather desolate as he stepped into the new moon kitchen. Old cousin Jimmy was there. 
Cousin Jimmy did not seem to have much to do, although it was a good heyday, and Jimmy Joe Bell and Perry were hauling in great, fragrant, sun-dried loads. He sat by the western window, with a strange expression on his face. Hello, Jimmy. Where are the girls? And how is Emily? Emily is better, said Cousin Jimmy. The rash is out, and her fever has gone down. I think she's asleep. Good. We couldn't afford to lose that little girl, could we, Jimmy? No, said Jimmy, but he did not seem to want to talk about it. Laura and Elizabeth are in the sitting room. They want to see you. He paused a minute, and then added in an eerie way, There's nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. It occurred to Alan Burnley that Jimmy was acting mysteriously, and if Laura and Elizabeth wanted to see him, why didn't they come out? It wasn't like them to stand on ceremony in this fashion. He pushed open the sitting room door impatiently. Laura Murray was sitting on the sofa, leaning her head on its arm. He could not see her face, but he felt that she was crying. Elizabeth was sitting bolt upright on a chair. She wore her second best black silk and her second best lace cap, and she too had been crying. Dr. Burnley never attached much importance to Laura's tears, easy as those of most women, but that Elizabeth Murray should cry. Had he ever seen her cry before? The thought of Isla flashed into his mind, his little neglected daughter. Had anything happened to Isla? In one dreadful moment, Alan Burnley paid the price of his treatment of his child. What is wrong? he exclaimed in his gruffest manner. Oh, Alan, said Elizabeth Murray. God forgive us. God forgive us all. It is Isla, said Burnley, dully. No, no, not Isla. Then she told him. She told him what had been found at the bottom of the old Lee Well. She told him what had been the real fate of the lovely, laughing young wife, whose name for twelve bitter years had never crossed his lips. It was not until the next evening that Emily saw the doctor. She was lying in bed, weak and limp, red as a peat with the measles rash, but quite herself again. Alan Burnley stood by the bed and looked down at her. Emily, dear little child, do you know what you have done for me? God knows how you did it. I thought you didn't believe in God, said Emily, wonderingly. 
You have given me back my faith in him, Emily. Why? What have I done? Dr. Burnley saw that she had no remembrance of her delirium. Laura had told him that she had slept long and soundly after Elizabeth's promise, and had awakened with fever gone and the eruption fast coming out. She had asked nothing, and they had said nothing. When you are better, we will tell you all, he said, smiling down at her. There was something very sorrowful in the smile, and yet something very sweet. He is smiling with his eyes as well as his mouth now, thought Emily. How, how did she know, whispered Laura Murray to him when he went down. I can't understand it, Alan. Nor I. These things are beyond us, Laura, he answered gravely. I only know this child has given Beatrice back to me, stainless and beloved. It can be explained rationally enough, perhaps. Emily has evidently been told about Beatrice and worried over it. A repeated, she couldn't have done it, shows that and the tales of the old Lee Well naturally made a deep impression on the mind of the sensitive child, keenly alive to dramatic values. In her delirium, she mixed this all up with the well-known fact of Jimmy's tumble into the new moon well, and the rest was coincidence. I would have explained it all so myself once, but now, now, Laura, I only say humbly, a little child shall lead them. Our stepmother's mother was a Highland Scotswoman. They said she had the second sight, said Elizabeth. I never believed in it before. The excitement of Blairwater had died away before Emily was deemed strong enough to hear the story. That which had been found in the old Lee Well had been buried in the Mitchell plot at Shrewsbury, and a white marble shaft, sacred to the memory of Beatrice Burnley, beloved wife of Alan Burnley, had been erected. The sensation caused by Dr. Burnley's presence every Sunday in the old Burnley pew had died away. On the first evening that Emily was allowed to sit up, Aunt Laura told her the whole story. Her manner of telling stripped it forever of the taint and innuendo left by Aunt Nancy. I knew Isla's mother couldn't have done it, said Emily triumphantly. We blame ourselves now for our lack of faith, said Aunt Laura. We should have known too, but it did seem black against her at the time. She was a bright, beautiful, merry creature. We thought her close friendship with her cousin natural and harmless. We know now it was so, 
But all these years since her disappearance, we have believed differently. Mr. James Lee remembers clearly that the well was open the night of Beatrice's disappearance. His hired man had taken the old rotten planks off it that evening, intending to put the new ones on at once. Then Robert Gearson's house caught fire, and he ran with everybody else to help save it. By the time it was out, it was too dark to finish with the well, and the man said nothing about it until the morning. Mr. Lee was angry with him. He said it was a scandalous thing to leave a well uncovered like that. He went right down and put the new planks in place himself. He did not look down in the well. Had he looked, he could have seen nothing, for the ferns growing out from the sides screened the depths. It was just after harvest. No one was in the field again before the next spring. He never connected Beatrice's disappearance with the open well. He wondered now that he didn't. But you see, dear, there had been much malicious gossip, and Beatrice was known to have gone on board the Lady of Winds. It was taken for granted she never came off it again. But she did, and went to her death in the old Lee Field. It was a dreadful ending to her bright young life, but not so dreadful, after all, as what we believed. For twelve years we have wronged the dead. But Emily, how could you know? I don't know. When the doctor came in that day, I couldn't remember anything. But now it seems to me that I remember something. Just as if I'd dreamed it, of seeing Isla's mother coming over the fields, singing. It was dark, and yet I could see the ace of hearts. Oh, auntie, I don't know. I don't like to think of it some way. We won't talk of it again, said Aunt Laura gently. It is one of the things best not talked of, one of God's secrets. And Isla, does her father love her now? asked Emily eagerly. Love her? He can't get enough of her. It seems as if he were pouring out on her at once all the shut-up love of those twelve years. He'll likely spoil her now as much with indulgence as he did before with neglect, said Elizabeth, coming in with Emily's supper in time to hear Laura's reply. It will take a lot of love to spoil Isla, laughed Laura. She's drinking it up like a thirsty sponge, and she loves him wildly in return. There isn't a trace of grudge in her over his long neglect. All the same, said Elizabeth grimly, tucking pillows behind Emily's back with a very gentle hand, oddly in contrast with her severe expression. He won't get off so easily. Isla has run wild for twelve years. He won't find it so easy to make her behave properly now 
if he ever does. Love will do wonders, said Aunt Laura softly. Of course, Isla is dying to come and see you, Emily, but she must wait until there is no danger of infection. I told her she might write, but when she found I would have to read it because of your eyes, she said she'd wait till you could read it yourself. Evidently, Laura laughed again. Evidently, Isla has much of importance to tell you. I didn't know anybody could be as happy as I am now, said Emily. And oh, Aunt Elizabeth, it is so nice to feel hungry again and to have something to chew. Chapter 31 Emily's Great Moment Emily's conveillance was rather slow. Physically, she recovered with normal clarity, but a certain spiritual and emotional languor persisted for a time. One cannot go down to the depths of hidden things and escape the penalty. Aunt Elizabeth said she moped, but Emily was too happy and contented to mope. It was just that life seemed to have lost its savour for a time, as if some spring of vital energy had been drained out of it and refilled slowly. She had, just then, no one to play with. Perry, Isla and Teddy had all come down with measles the same day. Mrs. Kent at first declared bitterly that Teddy had caught them at New Moon, but all three had contracted them at a Sunday school picnic where Derry Pond children had been. That picnic infected all Blair Water. There was a perfect orgy of measles. Teddy and Isla were only moderately ill, but Perry, who had insisted on going home to Aunt Tom at the first symptom, nearly died. Emily was not allowed to know his danger until it had passed, lest it worry her too much. Even Aunt Elizabeth worried over it. She was surprised to discover how much they missed Perry round the place. It was fortunate for Emily that Dean Priest was in Blairwater during this forlorn time. His companionship was just what she needed and helped her wonderfully on the road to complete recovery. They went for long walks together over Blairwater, with Tweed woofing around them, and explored places and roads Emily had never seen before. They watched a young moon grow old, night by night. They talked in dim, scented chambers of twilight over long red roads of mystery. They followed the lure of hill winds. They saw the stars rise, and Dean told her all about them, the great constellations of the old myths. It was a wonderful month, but on the first day of Teddy's conveillance, Emily was off to the Tansy Patch for the afternoon, and Jarback Priest walked, if he walked at all, alone. 
Aunt Elizabeth was extremely polite to him, though she did not like the priests of Priest Pond overmuch, and never felt quite comfortable under the mocking gleam of Jarback's green eyes and the faint derision of his smile, which seemed to make Murray pride and Murray traditions seem less important than they really were. He has the priest flavour, she told Laura, though it isn't as strong in him as in most of them. And he's certainly helping Emily. She has begun to perk up since he came. Emily continued to perk up, and by September, when the measles epidemic was spent, and Dean Priest had gone on one of his sudden swoops over to Europe for the autumn, she was ready for school again. A little taller, a little thinner, a little less childlike, with great grey shadowy eyes that had looked into death and read the riddle of the buried thing. With great grey shadowy eyes that had looked into death and read the riddle of a buried thing, and henceforth would hold in them some haunting, elusive remembrance of that world behind the veil. Dean Priest had seen it. Mr. Carpenter saw it when she smiled at him across her desk at school. She's left the childhood of her soul behind, though she is still a child in body, he muttered. One afternoon, amid the golden days and hazes of October, he asked her gruffly to let him see some of her verses. I never meant to encourage you in it, he said. I don't mean it now. Probably you can't write a line of real poetry, and never will. But let me see your stuff. If it's hopelessly bad, I'll tell you so. And I won't have you wasting years striving for the unattainable. At least, I won't have it on my conscience if you do. If there's any promise in it, I'll tell you so just as honestly, and bring some of your stories too. They're trash yet, that's certain, but I'll see if they show just and sufficient cause for going on. Emily spent a very solemn hour that evening, weighing, choosing, rejecting. To the little bundle of verses she added one of her Jimmy books, which contained, as she thought, her best stories. She went to school next day, so secret and mysterious that Isla took offence, started to call her names, and then stopped. Isla had promised to her father that she would try to break herself of the habit of calling names. She was making fairly good headway, and her conversation, if less vivid, was beginning to approximate to New Moon standards. Emily made a sad mess of her lessons that day. She was nervous and frightened. She had a tremendous respect for Mr. Carpenter's opinion. Father Cassidy had told her to keep on. Dean Priest had told her that someday she might really write, but perhaps they were only trying to be encouraging because they liked her and didn't want to hurt her feelings. Emily knew Mr. Carpenter would not do this. No matter if he did like her, 
he would nip her aspirations mercilessly if he thought the root of the matter was not in her. If on the contrary, he bade her Godspeed, she would rest content with that against the world and never lose heart in the face of any future criticism. No wonder the day seemed fraught with tremendous issue to Emily. When school was out, Mr. Carpenter asked her to remain. She was so white and tense that the other pupils thought she must have been found out by Mr. Carpenter in some especially dreadful behaviour, and knew she was going to catch it. Rhoda Stewart flung her a significantly malicious smile from the porch, which Emily never saw. She was, indeed, at a momentous bar, with Mr. Carpenter as supreme judge, and her whole future career, so she believed, hanged on his verdict. The pupils disappeared, and a mellow, sunshiny stillness settled over the old schoolroom. Mr. Carpenter took the little packet she had given him in the morning out of his desk, came down the aisle and sat in the seat before her, facing her. Very deliberately, he settled his glasses astride his hooked nose, took out her manuscripts and began to read, or rather to glance over them, flinging scraps of comments mingled with grunts sniffs and hoots at her as he glanced. Emily folded her cold hands on her desk and braced her feet against the legs of it to keep her knees from trembling. This was a very terrible experience. She wished she had never given her verses to Mr. Carpenter. They were no good. Of course they were no good. Remember the editor of the Enterprise. Humph, said Mr. Carpenter. Sunset. Lord, how many poems have been written on sunset? The clouds are massed in splendid state at heaven's unbarred western gate where troops of star-eyed spirits wait. By gad, what does that mean? I... I don't know faltered startled Emily, whose wits had been scattered by the sudden swoop of his spiked glance. Mr. Carpenter snorted. For heaven's sake, girl, don't write what you can't understand yourself. And this, to life. Life as thy gift I ask no rainbow joy. Is that sincere? Is it, girl? Stop and think. Do you ask no rainbow joy of life? He transfixed her with another glare, but Emily was beginning to pick herself up a bit. Nevertheless, she suddenly felt oddly ashamed of the very alleviated and unselfish desires expressed in that sonnet. No, no, she answered reluctantly. I do want rainbow joy. Lots of it. Of course you do. We all do. We don't get it. You won't get it. But don't be hypocrite enough to pretend you don't want it, even in a sonnet. 
lines to a mountain cascade. On its dark rocks like the whiteness of a veil around a bride. Where did you see a mountain cascade in Prince Edward Island? Nowhere. There's a picture of one in Dr. Burnley's library. A wood stream. The threading sunbeams quiver. The bending bushes shiver. O'er the little shadowy river. There's only one more rhyme that occurs to me. That's liver. Why did you leave it out? Emily writhed. Wind song. I have shaken the dew in the meadows from the clover's creamy gown. Pretty but weak. June. June, for heaven's sake, girl. Don't write poetry on June. It's the sickliest subject in the world. It's been written to death. No. June is immortal cried Emily suddenly, a mutinous sparkle replacing the strained look in her eyes. She was not going to let Mr. Carpenter have it all his own way. But Mr. Carpenter had tossed June aside without reading a line of it. I weary of the hungry world. What do you know of the hungry world? You in your new moon seclusion of old trees and old maids, but it is hungry. Ode to winter. The seasons are of a sort of disease all young poets must have, it seems. Ha! Spring will not forget. That's a good line. The only good line in it. Hmm. Wanderings. I've learned the secret of the rune that the sombre pines on the hillside croon. Have you? Have you learned that secret? I think I've always known it, said Emily dreamily. The flash of unimaginable sweetness that sometimes surprised her had just come and gone. Aim and endeavour. Too didactic. Too didactic. You've no right to try to teach until you're old, and then you won't want to. Her face was like a star, all pale and fair. Were you looking in the glass when you composed that line? No, indignantly. When the morning light is shaken like a banner on the hill. A good line, a good line. Oh. On such a golden morning, to be living is delight. Too much like a faint echo of Wordsworth. The sea in September. Blue and austerely bright. Austerely bright. Child, how can you marry the right adjectives like that? Morning. All the secret fears that haunt the night. What do you know of the fears that haunt the night? I know something, said Emily decidedly, remembering her first night at Wither Grange. To a dead day, with the chilly calm on her brow that only the dead may wear. Have you ever seen the chilly calm on the brow of the dead, Emily? Yes, said Emily softly.
recalling that grey dawn in the old house in the hollow. I thought so, otherwise you couldn't have written that. And even as it is, how old are you, Jade? Thirteen last May. Hump. Lines to Mrs. George Irving's infant son. You should study the art of titles, Emily. There's a fashion in them, as in everything else. Your titles are as out of date as candles of new moon. Soundly he sleeps with his red lips pressed like a beautiful blossom close to her breast. The rest isn't worth reading. September. Is there a month you've missed? Windy meadows harvest deep. Good line. Blair water by moonlight. Gossamer. Emily. Nothing but gossamer. The garden of new moon. Beguiling laughter and old song of merry maids and men. Good line. I suppose new moon is full of ghosts. Death's fell minion well fulfilled its part. That might have passed in Addison's day, but not now. Not now, Emily. Your azure dimples are the graves where million buried sunbeams play. Atrocious girl, atrocious. Graves aren't playgrounds. How much would you play if you were buried? Emily writhed and blushed again. Why couldn't she have seen that herself? Any goose could have seen it. Sail onward, ships. White wings sail on. Till past the horizon's purple bar. You drift from sight. In flush of dawn. Sail on. And neath the evening star. Trash. Trash. And yet there's a picture in it. Lap softly, purple waves. I dream. And dreams are sweet. I'll wake no more. Ah, but you'll have to wake if you want to accomplish anything. Girl, you've used purple twice in the same poem. Buttercups in a golden frenzy. A golden frenzy? Girl, I see the wind shaking the buttercups. From the purple gates of the west I come. You're too fond of purple, Emily. It's such a lovely word, said Emily. Dreams that seem too bright to die. Seem, but never are, Emily. The luring voice of the echo fame. So you've heard it, too. It is a lure, and for most of us, only an echo. And that's the last of the lot. Mr. Carpenter swept the little sheets aside, folding his arms on the desk, and looked over his glasses at Emily. Emily looked back at him mutely, nervously. All the life seemed to have drained out of her body and concentrated in her eyes. Ten good lines out of four hundred, Emily. Comparatively good, that is. And all the rest, boulder dash. Boulder dash, Emily. I suppose so, said Emily, faintly. Her eyes brimmed with tears, 
Her lips quivered. She could not help it. Pride was hopelessly submerged in the bitterness of her disappointment. She felt exactly like a candle that somebody had blown out. What are you crying for? demanded Mr. Carpenter. Emily blinked away the tears and tried to laugh. I... I'm sorry. You think it's no good, she said. Mr. Carpenter gave the desk a mighty thump. No good? Didn't I tell you there were ten good lines? Jade, for ten righteous men Sodom had been spared. Do you mean that after all, the candle was being relighted again? Of course I mean. If at thirteen you can write ten good lines, at twenty you'll write ten times ten, if the gods are kind. Stop messing over months, though, and don't imagine you're a genius either. If you have written ten decent lines, I think there's something trying to speak through you, but you'll have to make yourself a fit instrument for it. You've got to work hard and sacrifice, by gad girl. You've chosen a jealous goddess, and she never lets her victories go, not even when she shuts her ears forever to their plea. What have you there? Emily, her heart thrilling, handed him her jimmy book. She was so happy that it shone through her whole being with a positive radiance. She saw her future, wonderful, bright. Oh, her goddess would listen to her. Emily B. Starr, the distinguished poet. Emily Bird Starr, the rising young novelist. She was recalled from her enchanting reverie by a chuckle from Mr. Carpenter. Emily wondered a little uneasily what he was laughing at. She didn't think there was anything funny in that book. Only three or four of her latest stories. The Butterfly Queen. A Little Fairy Tale. The Disappointed House. Wherein she had woven a pretty dream of hopes come true after long years. The Secret of the Glen. Which, in spite of its title, was a fanciful little dialogue between the spirit of the snow, the spirit of the grey rain, the spirit of the mist and the spirit of moonshine. So you think I am not beautiful when I say my prayers, said Mr. Carpenter. Emily gasped, realised what had happened, made a frantic grab at her jimmy book, missed it. Mr. Carpenter held it up beyond her reach and mocked her. She had given him the wrong jimmy book, and this one, oh, horrors, what was in it, or rather, what wasn't in it. Sketches of everyone in Blairwater, and a full, a very full description of Mr. Carpenter himself. Intent on describing him exactly, she had been as mercilessly lucid as she always was, especially in regard to the odd faces he made on mornings when he opened the school day with a prayer. Thanks to her dramatic knack of word-painting, Mr. Carpenter lived in that sketch. Emily did not know it, 
but he did. He saw himself as in a glass, and the artistry of it pleased him so that he cared for nothing else. Besides, she had drawn his good points quite as clearly as his bad ones, and there were some sentences in it. He looks as if he knew a great deal that can never be any use to him. I think he wears the black coat Mondays because it makes him feel that he hasn't been drunk at all. Who or what had taught the little jade these things? Oh, her goddess would not pass Emily by. I'm sorry, said Emily, crimson with shame all over her dainty paleness. Why, I wouldn't have missed this for all the poetry you've written or ever will write. By gad, it's literature. Literature. And you're only thirteen. But you don't know what's ahead of you. The stony hills. The steep ascents. The buffets. The discouragements. Stay in the valley if you're wise. Emily, why do you want to write? Give me your reason. I want to be famous and rich, said Emily coolly. Everybody does. Is that all? No. I just love to write. A better reason, but not enough. Not enough. Tell me this. If you knew you'd never have a line published, would you still go on writing? Would you? Of course I would, said Emily disdainfully. Why, I have to write. I can't help it by times. I've just got to. Oh, then I'd waste my breath giving advice at all. If it's in you to climb, you must. There are those who must lift their eyes to the hills. They can't breathe properly in the valleys. God help them if there's some weakness in them that prevents their climbing. You don't understand a word I'm saying, yet. But go on, climb. There, take your book and go home. Thirty years from now, I will have a claim to distinction in the fact that Emily Bird Star was once a pupil of mine. Go, go before I remember what a disrespectful baggage you are to write such stuff about me and be properly enraged. Emily went, still a bit scared, but oddly exultant behind her fright. She was so happy that her happiness seemed to irradiate the world with its own splendour. All the sweet sounds of nature around her seemed like the broken words of her own delight. Mr. Carpenter watched her out of sight from the old worn threshold. Wind and flame and sea, he muttered. Nature is always taking us by surprise. This child has what I have never had and would have made any sacrifice to have. But the gods don't allow us to be in their debt. She will pay for it. She will pay. At sunset, Emily sat in the lookout room. It was flooded with soft splendour. Outside, in the sky and trees, 
were delicate tintings and aerial sounds. Down in the garden, Daffy was chasing dead leaves around the red walks. The sight of his sleek, striped sides, the grace of his movement, gave her pleasure, as did the beautiful, even, glossy furrows of the ploughed fields beyond the lane, and the first faint white star in the crystal green sky. The wind of the autumn night was blowing trumpets of fairyland on the hills, and over in Lofty John's bush was laughter, like the laughter of fawns. Isla and Perry and Teddy were waiting there for her. They had made a tryst for a twilight romp. She would go to them presently, not yet. She was so full of rapture that she must write it out before she went back from her world of dreams to the world of reality. Once she would have poured it into a letter to her father. She could no longer do that. But on the table before her lay a brand new Jimmy book. She pulled it towards her, took up her pen, and on its first virgin page she wrote, New Moon, Blairwater, P.E. Island, October 8th. I am going to write a diary that it may be published when I die. The End